welcome to the Holistic Women's Health Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Adele King, certified nutritionist and holistic women's health expert. Here, we'll cover all topics related to nutrition, women's health, hormones, self-development, and personal growth. I'm here to guide you on your journey to balancing your hormones, loving your menstruation, cycle syncing, and living your best life. Now let's get into it. Hello, and welcome back to the Holistic Women's Health Podcast. On today's episode, I have Dr. Heather Moday, who is a board-certified allergist and immunologist, as well as an integrative and functional medicine physician. Through her practice, the Moday Center, she works to empower people to reclaim their health through comprehensive lifestyle programs, which focus on reversing chronic disease, as well as creating optimum wellness. She lives in Virginia with her partner and their cats, Flannel and Raphael, and a dog, Remy. I'm really excited to talk with Dr. Heather today about her new book, The Immunotype Breakthrough. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's really great to be here, Alex. I'm, I'm really excited to talk with you and talk about this subject. I've never had anyone on before to talk about this. So I would love to start off just by getting to know you a bit more and to understand a bit more of what got you into the field of medicine and then furthering your education through functional medicine and then specializing in immunology and allergy. Great. Yeah. So you know, it's hard to know why I went into medicine initially. I, I think I was a biology major in college. And, you know, I talk about this a little bit in the book, you know, post college, I sort of bummed around for a couple of years, but I ended up working in a immunology lab, actually. And that wasn't by, by choice, really, I needed a job. And this was a great, very sort of prestigious lab which I didn't really know at the time. (laughs) And interesting because that experience, the research they were doing was looking at the stress response and how that actually changes our immune system. So this was quite a while ago. This was really before we knew a lot about that. And we were just sort of figuring out like, oh yes, stress, chronic stress does, you know, hamper your immune system. So I did that for three years. And then through that decided I wanted to go into medicine. I thought I really, as much as I like reading about research, I didn't like doing it myself. So, you know, I much preferred like the clinical work. So I went to medical school, loved it and decided to do internal medicine. So, and, and after that, you can really, you can stay a general practitioner or you can do a specialty. And I ended up doing a fellowship in, in allergy and immunology. So they sort of put the two together in the United States as one fellowship. And so I did that and then joined a private practice and really you know, it was during that time that, you know, I enjoyed it. I loved seeing patients, but, you know, I mostly was prescribing a lot of medications and things like that. And I didn't really feel like I was fulfilling like my curiosity and my need to learn more. And I always had a interest in more lifestyle medicine, you know, fitness, nutrition, and also sort of spiritual mind body connection as it relates to health. And, you know, this was not, I was not getting any of this out of my jobs. I decided to do a integrative medicine practice and, you know, which is a more holistic sort of approach. And we do have a couple of fellowships in this country. And so I I did that in Arizona for two years. And then I started just going to conferences in functional medicine, which is, you know, very similar, but relies a little bit more on individualized testing and biochemical testing, hormones, gut testing and things like that. And I just found that really 
sort of the nerd inside of me. I really, I really liked that. And then I just got, I, I just got sucked in and I thought there's no way I can keep practicing the way I'm practicing. I just loved it so much. And so I left my practice and started my own very small sort of we call concierge practice. I work with a small amount of people and I was doing this in Philadelphia for, for several years and then relocated just recently. And I'm working virtually now with people. So yeah, I really enjoy it. And I, I work a lot with women. I mean, obviously women, um, women go to health practitioners more so. And also I do see a lot of autoimmune clients, which tends to be more predominant in women, a lot of chronic GI issues, hormone issues. So yeah, so that's where I am now. Wonderful. I love hearing your story and the the transition through everything. Something that you just touched on, which I thought was super interesting, is that more women have more autoimmune issues. Would you say that's in response to stress or is it something else? So it's probably in response to how women's immune systems work, because we might argue that women have more stress than men do. <laughs> but, um, but actually, I think women are more capable of, of managing stress. But you know, there are changes in the immune system, in particular around pregnancy. And of course, not all women who get autoimmune disease ever go through a pregnancy. But, you know, there are, there are specific changes that occur, of course, because when you're pregnant, you're carrying, you know, you're carrying a fetus that is half, half is not you, right? I mean, half is DNA from some other person, right? So, you know, when we think of how the immune system works, we have to be able to differentiate between self and non-self. And that's, that's a really important theme that runs through immunology. But also in that case, they have to be able to tolerate and know, right, that this, this, you know, thing that you're carrying this, you know, this child, this embryo is, is something that should not be attacked, even though the tissue is different. Because if you think about it, you know, when you get a, say, an organ transplant, people have to go on immune suppressive drugs in order to prevent rejection of the organ. And obviously, women who get pregnant don't have to do that, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, we think that there are changes that occur maybe through stress, maybe just through genetics, that sometimes post-pregnancy, you know, years later, women will have this issue. Now, there's plenty of women who get autoimmune disease earlier, and this may have to do with just genetics and environmental triggers like stress, toxicity, you know, toxins and chemicals in our environment and things like that. So, but it is really, really interesting. There's a significant difference between men and women. There's only one or two diseases autoimmune diseases that occur more in men than women. So it's pretty interesting. Wow. Yeah. That's super fascinating. I never really thought about it in that way, but that's yeah. super interesting. And it's just getting the, the wheels turning for other questions. But before we dive in to a bit more, and I want to ask a question about genetics and stuff like that, but just for someone who is all new to this topic, typically they think immune system and, you know, common cold and flu and stuff like that. But can you talk about some of the basics and why it's important to have a good, strong immune system and the definition of, of autoimmune for those people who are like, this is totally new. I don't know some of these terms. <laughs> sure. Yeah. It's, you know, I think most, most of us think, oh, immunity or immune system, what it does is it prevents me from getting sick with a virus or a bacteria or something like that. But it does a lot more than that, right? So yeah. if we didn't have immune systems, we would be toast. <laughs> because all day long, 
you know, from the time that we're born, we're exposed to different things in the environment. Like we're constantly exposed to viruses and, and bacteria and parasites. And, you know, we breathe them in, we swallow them, etc. But at the same time, our immune system does a lot more than that. So it does, you know, obviously different cells sort of move around and identify these things that get into our system and kill them, right? But our immune system also helps us with repair many, many tissues. So if you think about it, if you get a cut or a scratch or you have surgery or you break a bone, your immune system is the one is responsible for mending that, right? So Another thing that it does, and this happens obviously with with infection too, is it goes to the site, whatever needs, you know, whatever is, you know, inflamed, right? It can, these cells can create inflammation, which is part of the whole killing process. But then they have to signal to other cells and release different, you know, chemicals, we call those cytokines, to change the environment. So it might bring blood and fluid to the area. Most people could identify this with swelling or heat if they ever hurt themselves. That's part of the the healing process. That's inflammation, but it's a necessary part because it's bringing other cells in, it's bringing fluid, bringing things to help clotting. And then over time, another thing that our immune cells do is it they create uh, resolution. So the second part of the inflammatory response is really like a cleanup job, right? So they also do that too. So there's so many different cells that have these different tasks. And so inflammation, killing, resolution, all really important. The other thing too is all day long, we're being exposed to what we would call like free radicals. This could be everything from things that we eat. Of course, it can be sunlight, you know, UV rays, chemicals, etc. Anything that can sort of damage or change our our cells. And our immune system uses uh, things like antioxidants in the foods that we eat to actually repair cells, repair DNA so we don't end up A, aging before our time, or having damage that then might become cancerous because we know obviously chronically damaged cells, you know, depending on whether it's caused by smoking or UV damage can then create a cancerous cell, which again, our immune system is sort of trained to try to identify and get rid of. And then in terms of autoimmunity, so as I sort of mentioned in the beginning, you know, one of the cardinal rules of our immune system is something called tolerance. And so you, you can think of it as this way is, is when we make certain cells, certain white blood cells, specifically things like what are called T cells, B cells, these are part of uh, lymphocytes, which are part of our adaptive immune system. And these cells, of course, are extremely specialized. And But when they're first developed in our body, they, they, they sort of go through a testing procedure that they have to sort of prove that they are not going to bother a human cell. So this is testing of their tolerance. And so if they recognize a human cell or human tissue, they are actually killed, like it's destroyed before it's able to go out into circulation. So that is tolerance. And with autoimmune disease, what happens is there's loss of tolerance. And there's different reasons why this happens. And, you know, we can go into that, but that's sort of we start in autoimmune disease seeing basically that certain cells, you know, should be destroyed or should be attacked. 
And that's mm-hmm. when the autoimmune disease occurs. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy. <laughs> that's super, super fascinating about, you know, the tolerance and some of the signs behind that. And I know in your book as well, you break down all the different cells and you give great analogies, like there are army and mm-hmm. it's just, you break mm-hmm. it down really well in the book, which I really appreciated. And a question that came up before we got into this discussion was a little bit about genetics. So I'm just curious if there is for our immune system when we're born, is this dependent on our mother's immune system? And is there a genetic component as well? Hmm. There definitely is a genetic component to changes in our, you know, sort of what we inherit. And and this can come both ways. You know, we do, we do inherit different parts of our parents. So for example, most of the immune issues are non, they don't come from like the X or the Y chromosome. And so, you know, women obviously don't get a Y chromosome, they get just two X's. <laughs> but we do get one from the father and one from from our from our mother. But, you know, there definitely are some immune issues that can be there at birth. But I would say that for the most part, immune deficiencies, if they're not there at birth, or autoimmune issues, if they're not there at birth, they develop later on in life. But if, like I said, if you look back through someone's history, you can often see that several family members might have had different kinds of autoimmune disease. So I see that a lot. So let's just say a woman comes in and has been diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. She may say, oh, I have a cousin or an aunt or a grandmother who had, it doesn't even have to be rheumatoid arthritis. It could be multiple sclerosis. It could be um, another type like a um, what we call Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is an autoimmune thyroid disease. And so you, de- you definitely see that sprinkled through families, but they've never been able to identify exact genetic links. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. And then as far as in the, the mother component at birth, do you feel like there's an advantage with a vaginal birth compared to C-section and then breast milk compared to formula with the in terms of immune system? Absolutely. And we know that we do know that there are, and they've done studies on this, increases not so much with autoimmune issues, but allergies, which is another, you know, what I call an imbalance. I call that the hyperactive immunotype. So, and you know, allergies range tremendously in terms of severity, but children who are either not breastfed and not vaginal birth tend to have a higher incidence of this hyperactive allergic response. And, you know, there's different reasons for that. You know, when, when you have a vaginal birth, obviously babies pick up, that's where they pick up their first microbes. So you literally seed the microbiome of your gut and the microbiome of our gut is very, very important for the establishment of our immunity and our immune system. So, you know, they literally swallow and get covered with bacteria from mom. It doesn't mean that they can't, obviously, in the first few months of life, which is really, really important, pick up other bacteria. They, we pick up bacteria from everything, our dog, the you know, our siblings, stuff on the floor, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? But we do get a, a better, I'm going to say, better established microbiome from a vaginal birth. And then, you know, babies have a very, very undeveloped immune system at birth. And, you know, with the colostrum that comes from breast milk, you get all of these immunoglobulins or antibodies. So you get, and that is really great. And that happens really in all mammals. I mean, cows, goats, you know, really rich source of immune globulins, which is 
really protective towards microbes, et cetera, until babies are able to make enough on their own. So mm-hmm. it's definitely an advantage for sure. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Perfect. You brought up one of the four immunotypes and you brought up the hyperactive immunotype, which upon taking the quiz, I found out was actually me. I thought that, <laughs> you know, I have a pretty good immune system. And then when I was going through the quiz, I was checking off actually quite a decent mm-hmm. amount in that category. And I was like, this is super fascinating. So Mm -hmm. can you touch on the four types? What do we need to know about them? And uh, yeah. Yeah. So and and this came about, you know, the whole concept of this is, you know, people may have, you know, a lot of allergies, but it doesn't mean that they don't have a strong immune system. They actually might be able to, you know, fend off all sorts of bacteria and parasites and whatever. At the same time, they may not have an autoimmune disease. So Really, you know, our immune system is not this sort of very static black and white, like you're weak, you're strong, whatever. Like that's not really the way it works. <laughs> it's it's multidimensional. And so you can be imbalanced in one direction. It doesn't mean mm-hmm. that other areas are not strong. So the patterns that I see when it comes to immune imbalance, and, and quite honestly, most of us have an immune imbalance. It doesn't mean, yeah. you know, you can't live a really healthy life. But the the four types are smoldering. Now, what this means is these people tend to have a lot of excess inflammation or chronic inflammation. Mm-hmm. Most of this is going to be driven by lifestyle issues. This could be everything from people who smoke, drink too much alcohol, eat really, you know, inflammatory foods, don't exercise, maybe they're obese, or just people that are super stressed out and don't really sleep, you know, there's all different, you know, sort of levels. So, and basically, smoldering just means that, you know, they're sort of chronically dealing with low level inflammation. And so they can end up with certain diseases that are associated with that. It could be anything from you know, diabetes, heart disease, hypertension, some skin issues, etc. So that's sort of the smoldering type. And then the hyperactive is people who have a normal, you know, they can have a normal immune response to things, but they also are reacting to things that are outside of their body that are generally not harmful. So, you know, Mm -hmm. like instead of, you know, there's no reason for us to have at least you know, evolutionarily, there's no reason for us to have reactions to say peanuts or dust or cat dander. These are just sort of benign proteins that are hanging out in our in our environment. And so that's caused by sort of a, a shift in some of the immune cells. So we start creating these um, allergic responses. The third is the misguided. Misguided is basically autoimmune issues and people who have, they, this is the most, I would say, complex and more, and I don't want to say serious, but it's, it is the most complex because generally people with autoimmune disease, it starts with some sort of inflammatory response, which then triggers this attempt to like clean it up. And then usually what happens is this misguided reaction or error occurs that our immune response sort of starts identifying and recognizing self tissue. And then it can really be many different presentations. There's probably a hundred different autoimmune diseases. And then last is the weak. Now, weak, this is one that I would say can be obviously congenital. Like some people can be born with some issues with low antibodies or things like that. It can be acquired through things like HIV or immune suppressive um, medications, obviously. <clears throat> but many people, for, for other reasons, you know, chronic stress, lack of sleep, poor 
nutrient intake will struggle with catching, you know, virus, you know, getting sick from viruses, getting sick from bacterial infections, recurrent infections, or not being able to clear them. Or they tend to break out with viruses like herpes viruses or, you know, uh, shingles, which is, you know, comes from chicken pox virus being reactivated. So these are the people who just struggle a little bit with that. And most of the time, I would say this is, I don't want to say it's the easiest to fix, but there's the people who, who do well with things when you're boosting your response, right? So yeah, so those are the four types. Good. I'm glad you touched on those. And it's super helpful for people to kind of identify. And again, of course, once they purchase your book, they can take the quiz and figure out which type they are. And then I would love to know some more of the the lifestyle factors that can either harm or, or is the correct term boost the immune system? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I sort of don't use the term a lot, because I feel like it's used for like everyone. So that was the whole sort of point. But yes, definitely boost, redirect, rebalance, you know, Rebounds. Yeah. Perfect. So uh, I know you touched on some specific ones in the books, like stress and sleep and nutrition. So can we touch on some of those areas? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and there's, there's obviously many things that affect our, our immune system, but the big ones that we know, and there's lots of research on, and hopefully may, much more in the future are, you know, how we sleep and, mm-hmm. you know, how much sleep we get, the quality of the sleep, how restorative it is, because, you know, we can go for weeks without eating, we can go for days without drinking and somehow survive, but we cannot survive without sleep. So luckily, we don't do experiments on that anymore. But you know, <laughs> we, we, when we sleep, because it's always sort of been a mystery, like, why do we you know, spend half of our lives asleep? And part of it is because that's actually when our immune system is really active. We do a ton of repair and a ton of killing and a ton of creating of new antibodies. So it's actually a very inflammatory time, but in a good way. And then we also do a lot of repair to our brain, our muscles, tissues. We do a digestion while we sleep. So our immune system really can suffer. And I do talk about a few studies, but one I always like to tell people in this area and in this era of vaccines, et cetera is that you actually can increase or boost your uh, response to a vaccination by getting a really good quality sleep. And you can actually hamper your response to a vaccination by um, not sleeping the next night or the day, you know, the night after you get the, the vaccine. So if you think about it chronically, if you're sleep deprived over time, it's, it makes sense that you're going to get, so that's one thing. So sleep is really crucial. The the chapter on stress is something that I, I feel like I could write a whole book on that, but um <laughs> You know, because we we have a stress response for a reason, and, and actually, our stress response initially is very anti-inflammatory. It you know we secrete adrenaline to help us get out of danger and cortisol, which is a very anti-inflammatory hormone. But the thing is, is it changes when we get into this sort of chronic low-level stress, which most people identify with. Our tissue and cellular response to low-level chronic stress actually becomes immune suppressive. And at the same time, inflammatory. So it's like a double-edged sword. So, and, and we know this from studies in animals, but also in humans. And it doesn't have to be physical stress, although it can be. It can be emotional stress. So really important to make that an important part of sort of, you know, health maintenance. Because 
it's it's silent, right? It's silent until yeah. it becomes deadly. So, so that's stress. And then of course, nutrition, that's sort of an obvious thing. You know, we feed our immune cells every day. I mean, they need tons of antioxidants to do their work, make antibodies. So you need everything from, you know, antioxidants, polyphenols, which are sort of plant chemicals, which act as antioxidants, lots of different vitamins and minerals. So things like zinc, selenium, so many different things. So nutrition obviously is really, really important. It's also important to stay away from inflammatory food. So it's it's not only bringing in the good, but keeping out the bad stuff. Toxicity. So one of the obviously theories as to why we're developing more autoimmune disease is that there are immune distractors. And, you know, probably with your your audience, you've talked about, we like to call them xenoestrogens or, or uh, man-made chemical compounds mm-hmm. that act like estrogen and can mimic hormones, also yeah. call them endocrine disruptors. So those types of things can trigger autoimmune disease and also can trigger obviously things like cancer and other issues. So, but not just, not just those, which are generally plastics and phthalates, but heavy metals, all sorts of pesticides, really just a whole bunch of things can act as, you know, over time can damage our cells, cause chronic inflammation, but also sometimes can make our cells look different so that we then might attack them. And this is one theory about maybe why women also have more autoimmune disease, because we tend to wear more makeup and body products and things like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so that can be, that's why it's so, so, so important for women to really, and men, of course, to look at, you know, what they're putting on their body and on their, in their hair and, you know, uh, what they're sort of cleaning their house with and things like that. So super important to, to keep that in mind. And then lastly, one of the most important things is tending to your gut. So, um, our gut microbiome has a very intimate uh, relationship with our immune system. We do have immune cells, obviously, that are all throughout the body, but they do have sort of a um, central station that they, the bulk of them sort of hang out in. And it's, it's this whole large area of lymph tissue, lymphoid nodules, or however you want to call it, called the gut-associated lymphoid tissue, or the GALT, G-A-L-T. And this is right sort of outside the cellular barrier to the interior of our of our intestinal tract. So, and then we have the microbes in there, which literally can crosstalk communication with those cells. So things that come into our digestive tract can also get across if if we have intestinal permeability, leaky gut, which can be brought on by different medications, chronic stress, anything that can damage the gut line. So, you know, there's so much data, there's so many great studies going on right now looking at our immune system, the health of it, and also what our gut microbes are doing, the health of the gut. So I encourage people to, to, you know, read up on that. And, and because it's something that you can do just by choosing what you eat and, you know, adding some things that are very, you know, gut healthy. Hmm. Perfect. I'm glad you touched on those big categories. And I just want to get a little bit deeper. You sparked some some questions based on some of the categories. So I'll start with the first one sleep, a question that came to my mind. Uh, you said quality and quantity of sleep. What about for shift workers, even if mm-hmm. they do get the recommend the recommended amount, mm-hmm. but they, you know, go from day shift to night yeah. shift. And I know in my hometown, there's a lot of shift workers. And so the the practice that I work at in my hometown, 
there is a lot of people who do work days, you know, for a couple of weeks, and then they're off one week, and then all of a sudden they switch to nights. So how does that impact their immune system? Unfortunately, not in a good way. And I hate to say that because obviously, you know, a lot of healthcare workers, I mean, they spend their entire nights working night shifts. And but there are studies looking at sort of the prevalence of different diseases and, you know, even lifespan, quite honestly, in chronic shift workers. And there is a disadvantage. And the reason is, is that humans obviously were meant to sleep at night when it's dark and be awake during the day when it's light. And part of that is, or a big part of it is we're ruled by our circadian rhythms, right? And we have internal circadian rhythms that are going to, you know, function whether it's light or dark. So, and, and we know that, but really they are kept in check and kept healthy by light and dark exposure. So, and, and the reason that is, is that the, when it is, when it does become dark, we have more of this hormone called melatonin, or we have a better secretion of melatonin at night. This happens usually in the beginning hours of sleep. It peaks probably sometime between 12 and two or so, and then it starts to steadily decrease. And then at our first bright light, it actually gets really suppressed. At the same time, it's a, it's opposition hormone called cortisol is highest in the morning with bright light and then goes down throughout the day and then really should be at its lowest, you know, around the same time. So they work in, in sort of tangentially, right. And Mm -hmm healthy cortisol and healthy melatonin keep our immune system functioning well. So, so for the shift workers, what I usually recommend is, you know, when you are going back and forth is use things like bright light in the morning to get you back on track. So you can, you can use these broad spectrum light uh, boxes, which are easy to find, um, especially where you are. And I mean, really anywhere in even the North, <laughs> the North, uh, <laughs> Eastern uh, or nor- Northern uh, continents, you know, yeah. we suffer from really short, short days. And of course, in certain areas of, of more North, sometimes you have longer days in the summer. But so light boxes are great in the morning using masks, obviously, and uh, blue light blocking glasses, which block the, the blue spectrum light um, before bed will get people back into a rhythm faster. You can also use melatonin, shift work and time change for people who like travel a lot. Melatonin can be really helpful to sort of get them back into the rhythm more readily. So those are some things to consider. Wonderful. Good. I'm glad you touched on that. And in terms of nutrition, this is my area of of expertise and specialty. I love talking about it. So if we could talk about some foods that are harmful towards the immune system, and then some foods that are good for the immune system. Sure. So, you know, easy thing to sort of start with is sugar as being not good for you. (laughs) Not to say that most people can't withstand, you know, a cookie or some chocolate or whatever. I mean, that's part of life. And it's fun, right? And it's good. Um, (laughs) However, as you know, you know, excess sugar actually can be very, very pro-inflammatory. Not only does it, you know, if over time you're eating even just really high, you know, simple sugars, high, simple carbohydrates, et cetera, it can drive your insulin up because your insulin is always attempting to reduce your blood sugar levels. But over time, if you become insulin resistant and you have poor blood sugar um, control, that is seen, it is very damaging. So it can damage red blood cells. That's how it does its damage in diabetes. It can damage all the vasculature of our body. 
capillaries, veins, arteries. That's how, that's why diabetics have, you know, all sorts of issues with heart disease, kidney disease, but you don't even have to have diabetes in order to have an inflammatory response to sugar. And they've proved that through many different studies, it's very inflammatory to the brain. So that's number one is reduce your sugar as much as you possibly can. And, you know, make sure that, you know, from time to time, you're having your blood sugar checked and and things like that. So that's number one. And, you know, you want to take out all false sugars too. Um, And then I would say also a big thing to to look out for is inflammatory fats. So, you know, fat itself is not inflammatory. It's actually really necessary nutrient, you know, and we sort of move past the fat is bad for you, hopefully (laughs) stage. And we know that um, fat is, it actually makes up our cellular um, membranes, like in our brain is, you know, probably 70, 60, 70% fat. All our cells are made of this, what we call lipid bilayer. And, and we even need cholesterol. Cholesterol is the backbone of our hormones. So, um, so fat is good for you. However, um, certain fats are not, and that would be trans fats, which are of course man-made. They are very pro-inflammatory and very rigid. So those should be absolutely avoided. Industrial seed oils, things that ha- have been like manufactured are also very inflammatory. So those should be avoided. So I usually tell people is really hone in on using things like if you were your oils, like using avocado oil and olive oil and coconut oil, even though it's a saturated fat is very good. Ghee, or if you're going to have animal fats, make sure that they're coming from grass pastured animals because those don't have as much as the omega-6 uh, fats, which are, you know, although we need some and we get plenty through plant foods too, they can be inflammatory if they get off balance. And then number one, of course, is to have lots of omega-3 fatty acids. Mm-hmm. Those are coming from fish, fatty fish like salmon and mackerel and sardines. You can get some from flaxseed. You can get some from algae, just smaller amounts. So that's something that we know is so, so anti-inflammatory and so good for you. So those would be things. I would say those are like the biggest. And then, of course, is, you know, watch your pesticide consumption. I can't remember. In Canada, can you use glyphosate? Um, do they use Roundup up there on crops or no? I believe they do. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I think not for individual per like purchasing, yeah. but you can easily cross the border and, and yeah. pick up all these types of chemicals and yeah. things. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, I mean, not to say that glyphosate is the only, I mean, we have lots of, there's lots of pesticides and herbicides that are used, but glyphosate is so rampant. And, you know, here you can go to your local like hardware store and pick up a can of Roundup um, to kill weeds in your yard. And that's glyphosate. So, you know, (laughs) if you can stay away from genetically modified crops because they use use glyphosate on genetically modified crops and really try to stick with the... um, stick with organic as as much as you can that's going to you know really decrease the whole body burden of pesticides in your body so Mm -hmm. wonderful i'm glad that you touched on on that as well that was going to be my next question if you didn't talk about the herbicides and pesticides but that's perfect and then so you touched on the sugar inflammatory foods the packaged foods pesticides so we know to decrease those and avoid them as best as possible and then what about foods that help to support our immune system yeah So number one, of course, is you want to make sure that you're getting plenty of antioxidants and natural antioxidants. There's many different antioxidants. I mean, there's many, 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 but you know, the big ones, things like vitamin C, vitamin A, 
vitamin E, vitamin D is an immune modulator, selenium, things like zinc, which is mineral. Those are all really important. And so you can get those from so many different foods. Obviously, a lot of the antioxidants come from plants. So, you know, obviously green leafy vegetables, a lot of the brightly colored fruits, citrus fruits, you know, different squashes and obviously, you know, sweet potatoes, things like that. Carrots all have a lot of beta carotene. I mean, there's also animal, obviously, sources. So vitamin A, which is a really important um, antioxidant, actually, it can really help with people who have autoimmune disease. The the richest source is liver, literally, which a lot of people don't like to eat, but, you know, cod liver, but you can also get it from other sources. And then, you know, I, I mentioned something called polyphenols and poly, polyphenols are basically like they're plant nutri- they're plant pigments. So they're things that we find in many, many, many different foods. I mean, you can find it everything from coffee to uh, chocolate to do things like raspberries, blueberries, etc. So, you know, if the easiest thing I tell people to do is eat a really ver- variety of different pigments in your diet that are natural. So, you know, eating from the rainbow, you know, you could sort of say, well, today I'm going to eat, you know, purple vegetables and tomorrow I'm going to eat, you know, blue and red. And, you know, if you sort of keep doing that, you're going to get a real variety, which is really the best thing. And then lastly, I would say fiber, you know, yeah, you don't think of fiber as like helping our immune system. You know, we think like, oh, you know, it makes us go to the bathroom, right? <laughs> or yeah. it might lower our cholesterol or <laughs> things like that, which is super, which is true. But fiber is the number one food for our gut, for our gut microbes. And as I mentioned before, those microbes, they're, they're dependent on us to feed them. And so, you know, if you think about it, you're like, you know, you're feeding this little zoo or this little universe and they subsist pretty much on soluble fiber and resistant starches that make their way down to the colon after we've extracted you know, all of the other nutrients out of it, what's left over, they actually eat and, and ferment. And they they create this really incredible, well, a bunch of different things, but butyrate is one of the main products that they create as a fuel from this. And that butyrate then helps us because it actually heals and feeds our colon cells. So it keeps, keeps us healthy. But so yes, yeah, so if you think about high fiber diet, healthy immune system. That's really number one. Perfect. Antioxidants, polyphenols, fiber. Super easy to remember. And there was a question still on the food topic. You touched on peanuts and I'm super interested to talk more about the the nut allergy component because my partner is very allergic to nuts. So I'm just curious about your thoughts on how we developed this allergy Mm -hmm. and just your, your overall thoughts on it. Mm -hmm. So we don't know exactly how it became very prevalent. You know, some people point to things like genetically modified foods, et cetera, because back in the day, you know, you can, if you look back, say 60 years, we did not have the same prevalence of food allergies as we have now. Yeah. I mean, that's obvious. It's that it's not anything. I mean, nobody could really argue that they can't say, oh, it wasn't identified. It definitely was. So does that point to less vaginal births? Does it point to less breastfeeding? Does it point to more toxins in the system? We don't know, but it's probably a combination of all of those things, increased antibiotic use in children, 
again, that kills your microbiome or, you know, significantly shrinks it. So all of those things we know are probably at play. And the reason is that with, you know, and, and when it comes to like why peanuts, it's a little unclear. There are specific proteins or peptides within foods that cause the problem. So in peanuts, it's something called ARA or ARA. Um, there are certain foods that are more predominantly allergenic. Dairy, so the casein, the whey proteins, nuts, which are actually not related to peanuts, as you know. There's <laughs> legumes, different family, but a lot of people are sensitive to them. Shellfish, eggs. So, and it, it probably just comes down to the 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 way that these proteins provoke the immune system. And for some people, they develop this allergic response. So you know, we don't really know, but we do know that improvement of gut health and gut microbiome can really reduce. I've seen this in, in my own patients. They may not lose their their allergy per se, but it can diminish. We know that people can get, have uh, non-allergic sensitivities to food that can get better with gut repair and improvement of the gut microbiome. So, so for people who say, you know, eat, maybe they eat soy and they get a stomach ache. They're not having an anaphylactic reaction over time, you know, through avoidance of the food and then repair of the gut, sometimes they can actually tolerate it again. So yes, the peanut issue is, is a problem. So I tell people for the allergies is really, really, you know, work on your gut, you know, really do everything you can fermented foods, lots of fiber, use things that can help that can be reparative to the gut. Fascinating, super interesting. I want to be mindful of your time. So I just have a, a couple more questions. Sure. But just in in terms of the, the allergies as well, it's super fascinating that my childhood best friend when she was younger was allergic to everything, all pets, dairy, tons of food, constantly had to carry an EpiPen. And then as she got older, just grew out of these allergies. And then I was the reverse when I was younger, not allergic to anything. And then as I got older and when I was in university, one summer I just developed allergies to ragweed and hay fever and my face swelled up just mm. randomly out of the blue. So I'm just curious on your thoughts as to why someone might develop allergies later in life and then what's how are we outgrowing them is it because we're diversifying our microbiome and decreasing toxins what are your thoughts mm -hmm. i mean i think with children part of it is their immune system just growing up in a way you know they they are developing we do know that most kids who have dairy allergies um, and egg allergies as children will grow out of them it's mm -hmm. it's for some reason peanut tends to hang on <laughs> um, which is, we don't really know why that is, but we think, you know, for the people who develop allergies when they're older, it can be because of gut issues. So it can be associated with things like maybe they had an infection. I talk about this in the book, but you know, we, the allergic response or some, some of the, I should say some of the cells that are recruited in the allergic response. So things like mast cells, which secrete histamine, eosinophils, which also secrete histamine, these are triggered by certain types of bacterial infections and parasites. So a lot of times when someone, they might've had a food poisoning or, you know, in some way got some sort of gut infection that can actually tip the immune system towards an allergic response that then holds on. It gets what we call polarized. And so, and then that can just sort of linger. Also things like stress can do it too. So, you know, a lot of times maybe if, 
you know, someone's in college and, you know, they're, you know, they're drinking a lot of beer and they're eating lots of pizza and they're staying up late nights and stuff like that. And, you know, that can sometimes trigger also a, uh, a shift in our immune response, which can hold on a, a while. Not to say that you were doing that, but you know, <laughs> yeah, definitely a lot of sleepless nights. So I feel like <laughs> that, yeah, some liver compromised, uh-huh. um, super, super fascinating. So just a, a couple more questions is, are there any myths around the immune system that you would like to bust? And then final question, is there anything in this whole episode that we didn't get to touch on that you really want to inform people about? Sure. Yeah. So myths, I would say, you know, well, the whole, the whole boosting myth was, you know, that everybody needs to boost their immune system and not everybody does, right? Because you could boost it in the wrong, wrong direction. Some people actually need their immune system to be calmed down. So for example, people with inflammation. So I would say that, you know, not everybody needs to take all sorts of things to boost their immune response. I would say that, you know, some of the myths around things would be things like, you know, at least here in the US, there was this, this sort of scare about taking things like elderberry, that we can actually take things that are going to be dangerous for us, like boost us, you know, give us a cytokine storm or something like that. And that was one of the things that they're saying, oh, you know, well, if you if you get COVID, don't take, don't take elderberry. And you know, the thing is, is a lot of these herbals and, and uh, plant foods and stuff like they're, they're very powerful, but they're not going to they're not so powerful that they're going to push our immune system to the point that we go into some sort of cytokine storm and, you know, septic shock and things like that. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's the beauty of using plant medicine is, is that it's powerful, but subtle, right? And, you know, it's nothing's going to happen like overnight, you know, generally, if you're taking something like, let's just say like an adaptogenic herb, right? So something like ashwagandha, you're not going to like reverse stress overnight. But if you use it daily for months, you know, several months, there will be shifts in, you know, how your hormones work and your immune system works and your stress um, responses. So, and the same with things like vitamin C, like vitamin C is great, but, and you can shorten the duration of a cold if you start using it, but you you know, you definitely want to take it for a few days. Mm -hmm. So I would say, don't be scared of, of these things, especially when you're getting them from food, right? Yeah. Makes perfect sense. Awesome. Oh, and then last, what would I, uh, so what did we not hit on? We really hit on just about everything. You know, I, I, I wrote the book with, you know, normal people in mind. So this is not meant to be some like treaties on the immune system. It's meant for like regular people to sort of grasp concepts and, and use them. And so, you know, and then the other thing was that I felt that a lot of people are given this message that they can't do anything to to shore up their health in terms of their immunity and that we're sort of all sitting ducks and, you know, but really that's not true. I mean, all the decisions we make, as we just talked about for an hour on a, on a daily basis, change how our immune response works because we're constantly turning cells over. Like we're constantly creating new you know, T cells and B cells and all these, you know, wonderful cells. And, you know, they're not, they're not there forever. And so if we're doing different things, if we're eating better, if we're sleeping better, stressing less, then we can actually create a much healthier immune response. And this can go, you know, really into old age. So I want it to be, I want people to feel that they have a lot of power, you know? Mm -hmm. 
Wonderful. I'm glad that we ended on that. (laughs) And I just wanted to say I appreciate you so much for being on, send you lots of gratitude. And I wanted to ask you where people can buy the book, The Immunotype Breakthrough, and where you're hanging out. Are you on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, any of those socials? So you can buy the book on Amazon. You can, that's probably the best way in Canada to buy it. In other, obviously in the US, you can get it. It's easy to order independent bookstores, which I love, you know, really anywhere books are sold. And then I am not a huge social media person, but I would say that I mostly, so I mostly stick around on Instagram and the, my handle there is at the immunity MD. So that's the best place to find me. And we do, you know, we do post some pretty cool stuff. I hop on there once in a while and and do some, some videos. So that's a great place to check, check things out there. Wonderful. I'll leave some links in the show notes below of where they can purchase in Canada and the United States so everyone can get their copy. And I know it's on Audible as well, which I'm a big fan of the audiobook. Yes, yes, it's on Audible. I I did do the first chapter because of COVID, I couldn't do the whole book. So but I did do the first the introductory, you know, vocals. So (laughs) it was wonderful. So we get to hear a little bit of your voice. Yes. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for being on. Thank you, Alex. It was really fun. Thank you so much for listening in to the Holistic Women's Health Podcast. If you liked this episode, feel free to share it with a friend, subscribe, rate, or review this podcast. And for more health, wellness, and lifestyle tips, you can always come say hi to me on Instagram at nutritionmoderation or online at nutritionmoderation.com. I hope you have an amazing day wherever you are, and I'll chat with you soon.